Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to wish everybody a happy and healthy holiday season. I know these are uncertain times. I know you might have a lot of tough conversations, but just know you can always find what you need here at the Lincoln Project, lincolnproject.us. I hope you'll share what we're doing. I hope you'll share this podcast. And again, I hope you enjoy your time with friends and family. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Haley Seufer, CEO of the Jewish Democratic Council of America. She is a veteran of the Barack Obama administration, Capitol Hill, and is a proud graduate of the University of Michigan, Go Blue. Haley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Reid. Okay, so I assume that you are always busy in one way or the other, but unfortunately in the last eight to 10 weeks, I assume you've been extremely busy. So just to recap for everyone, on October 7th, Hamas terrorists, and to me that's what they are, crossed into Israel and killed more Jews at one time than have been lost since the Holocaust. I know that you probably have personal experience over there. I have more friends that live there than I actually understood until I started getting emails and texts and WhatsApp messages from them. So let's start with this. What did that day, what has that day meant for the American Jewish community? Complete horror. There was a sense of security. Even in Southern Israel, and I visited one of the kibbutzim that were attacked that day, there was a sense that that border was secure. Of course, everyone knew that Hamas, since 2006, was controlling Gaza, and there was literally just a fence between them. But Israel has not ever seen terror on this scale. And you're right, it was the largest single-day massacre of Jewish people since the Holocaust. But it also was systematic on the part of Hamas. They clearly planned meticulously. They used, you know, rockets in the air. They crossed through the fence. They used drones. motorized bikes right. to attack and drones to take out the communications. They attacked a music festival and killed over 250 young people and just massacred them. And they also brutally brutally attacked women in particular, using sexual violence as an act of war intentionally, which is a crime against humanity. So the terror of that day really cannot be understated. I mean, left 1,200 people dead. And that's what really the definition of a terrorist is. They, they targeted civilians, targeted civilians and abducted 240 people. A hundred have been released, but there's still 
well over 130 in Gaza. And, you know, we've seen the consequences as well in terms of rising anti-Semitism around the world, particularly in the United States. We as Jews feel a great loss after this day. I mean, it was, it was a horrific, horrific massacre. We also feel grateful for Joe Biden because not only has he been unequivocal in his condemnation of the attack, but also in his support of Israel and his support of American Jews. Can I talk about equivocation for a second? The world isn't black and white. Life isn't black and white. And I'm probably a little Old Testament when I say there is good and there is evil in the world. And I think when you see it, you should call it out. Evil, that is. But it seems that, to take a step back, Hamas is an organization. Its leadership knew what was going to happen when they did this. There could have been no question in their minds that when they carried out an attack like this that killed so many, that terrorized so many more, that brutally raped, maimed women, babies, old people, they knew what was going to happen. They wanted the reaction. So not only were they brutally killing Israelis, but they knew so many of their own people were going to be potentially hurt and killed, and they were willing to do it anyway. And so to me, I don't understand why I see whether or not it's, you know, some kids on campus or college presidents, why there are like, this is okay, but that's not. That's okay. That's not. Trigger warnings for this, safe spaces for that, but not for this. And I think compounding, you know, you talk about the president of Penn is, I think, and maybe this is just, I went to a state school, so forgive me. Maybe it's endemic to Ivy, the Ivy League, but there was an arrogance that came with the equivocation that I don't understand. I don't understand it either. There should be no moral equivalence between the terror that Hamas perpetrated and the response of the Israeli military going in and trying to take out the terrorists. Now, again, Hamas intentionally targeted civilians. Israel is targeting Hamas, but Hamas uses civilians as human shields. Their operations and command center is under a hospital. They store weapons in schools. And it is the most, one of the most densely populated areas on earth. Gaza, you have about 2 million people in a very small area, even more so now. Some people have been displaced there. It also doesn't have to be binary. We, and the majority of American Jews, not only strongly support Israel's security and right to self-defense, but also support the human rights of Palestinians. Any innocent life lost is too many. And that's why organizations like ours, in addition to supporting Israel at this time, also support the president's efforts to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza. They should have medical assistance, food, water. That's exactly what the president has been trying to do and negotiate these pauses, humanitarian pauses, get the aid in. But importantly, get the hostages out. For a time, it worked. But then Hamas launched rockets again. Exactly. 
And, you know, and again, they had to know that with the president and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor and whoever else is involved in Secretary Blinken, whoever else is involved in the negotiations and the talks with Netanyahu and the Israeli leadership, that they said, if this breaks, it better not be you. Right. Or please don't break the ceasefire. But a ceasefire for humanitarian purposes to release hostages doesn't do Hamas any good. You know, for whatever their sick, twisted, evil purposes are, peace doesn't work for them. There were many ceasefires in place since they took over Gaza in 2006-7. There have been multiple conflicts, cross-border conflicts with Israel, all of them via air, you know, rockets. This is the first time they've crossed into Israel. But multiple, I mean, we're talking like five or six conflicts that have ended in a ceasefire. There was a ceasefire in place October 6, which they violated. And yes, they violated the most recent one as well in terms of the negotiated humanitarian pause. They violated it. And they've also, and you're right, they exploited Israelis and frankly, the Jewish commitment to each life by taking hostages. They knew Israel would do anything to get those hostages back. And I mean, we've seen this in the past. There was a, an Israeli soldier, Ghalid uh, Shalit, was taken years ago for five years held in Gaza. And in the end, Israel ended up trading 1,100 prisoners just for his release. Every life is precious. And this is part of our tradition. Israel will continue to do whatever they can to get these hostages out. Clearly, Hamas does not have the same respect for life. Clearly, they are willing to sacrifice their own people's lives by using them as human shields. And that's what we're seeing happen in Gaza. Let me ask about the political situation in Gaza. So just so I'm clear and so the listeners are clear. So Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's also a political party. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, they won... The election that took place there, okay, 2006. So they are now the political party in you know in power in Gaza. They have been at odds with the Palestinian Authority, and that's which in is the in West control Bank. in the West Bank, okay. exactly. And the truth is that you know even though obviously Israel is the enemy of Hamas, I think that they have probably had just as much pain and suffering for the Palestinian people under Hamas's rule. I mean, there right. was a humanitarian crisis in place even before October 7th in Gaza because their priority has not been delivering for the Palestinian people. And so let's talk a little bit about that, because if you look at Gaza, it's a little strip of land, sort of southwest corner of Israel. But the southern end of Gaza abuts Egypt, right. not Israel. Right. So not to be too blunt about it, where is the Arab world? It's a great question. Uh, Hamas's leadership is in different locations. Their leader is actually in Qatar. Right. So he's not even, he doesn't have to deal with any of this. He's in Doha. I mean, right. you assume he's calling something in, but you have him in, in Doha. You have people obviously in Gaza that are calling some of the shots from under a hospital. But yes, there is a border with Egypt and they do not want Gazans coming into Egypt, into the Sinai. That border remains closed. 
We have negotiated efforts to get aid through that border into Gaza, but very little is coming out of Gaza in terms of people. I think there were a few people that they were able to get out that way to get medical assistance. But, you know, the Egyptians and the Qataris have been speaking with the Israelis and the Biden administration because we don't speak to Hamas. I mean, Hamas is a designated terrorist organization by the United States. We're not going to deal with them directly. So indirectly, and of course, in order to negotiate these uh, humanitarian pauses, someone had to do it, and that went through the Qataris. Yeah. But again, it's one thing to say, okay, the Egyptians don't want Gazans coming onto their territory, but the Egyptians in and of themselves could ship, I assume, whatever trucks full of water, food, aid they wanted to. They don't have to wait for permission, right? They get the fence. They can open it up. People would likely pour out if they did into the Sinai. Okay. So they're not going to open that border. And this is a longstanding challenge related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of the role of Arab countries with regard to the Palestinian conflict. It is my hope that the Egyptians, especially the Qataris, will continue to be helpful amid this current crisis to ensure that, again, the hostages, uh, this is really key, that these hostages are released. I mean, they released some women and children, not all, and there's still every single male hostage is still in Gaza, includes Americans. Well, yes. And of course, what a bargaining chip is they see it for whatever it is they want. Yeah. So let me make it a little bit personal. So my my dad's side of the family is Jewish. And my, I guess it would have been my great-grandfather, or maybe great-great-grandfather. I'd have to go back and look. But they came to the United States in like 1905-ish. I don't know if it was Poland or Belarus or Ukraine or let me use the whole sort of diaspora, right, mm-hmm. of Eastern Europe. It always belonged to somebody different on a given day. But they left because they were sick of getting beat up by the Cossacks, right, or whichever pogrom had, you know, sort of broken the desire to live there anymore. And I, October 7th started, I haven't thought about this a lot as someone who's Jewish, half Jewish. I know it's my dad's side, so it's a thing. But if they hadn't left, it's like a 95% chance you and I aren't sitting in these chairs talking. Yeah, absolutely. And that was what October 7th brought home for me is that memory. You know, you can't forget. It can never happen again. And I think that's why, again, among so many of my Jewish friends, it wasn't like anything else before. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Living here, you know, it was an emotional gut punch, but also an opportunity for me, right? My grandmother, she went to a kibbutzim in like when she was like 65 and filled sandbags, right? Loved it. Offered to send me back, you know, when I was 18 or whatever. I never took her up on it. I feel bad about that. I don't feel bad. I regret not going. I regret not taking the opportunity, but it also sort of brought into, for me, focus all of those things that my grandmother had talked about over the years. She was a proud Jew and she was a proud defender of Israel. And she went there, she raised money, but it it took this. And I don't know how I'm, I'm still, I don't know if I feel guilty I don't know if I feel bad. I don't know. I'm reflective for sure about that. It took me something like this to sort of bring all that to the fore. Does that make sense? It does. And I think for a lot of Jews also, there's kind of been a, an awakening yeah, in terms of. Right. That's the right word. 
you know, we we are of a generation where the Holocaust, of course, is a distant memory. Even the wars that Israel fought, whether it was 48 or, you know, it was a war of attrition in the 50s, 67, 73. I mean, we're talking 50 years ago. It, actually, to the day they launched us on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. This is not of our generation to have experienced something like this in Israel. And it is an awakening. And especially you see this with even younger Jews who just don't have as close of a connection to Israel. Like I studied in Israel. My parents sent me when I was 15. I studied there. I worked there. You know, with younger Jews, we see there's not as much of a connection, but this moment is a turning point, an inflection point, I do think. And what has actually been a source of light amid all of this darkness has been the coming together, whether it's at synagogues or as a community. I was at the White House for the Hanukkah party this week and just hearing from the president, again, his unequivocal support of, of it's not just Israel, but also American Jews in this moment. The second gentleman who's been a wonderful sure, champion, yep. first Jewish spouse of a president or vice president. And you used to work for Vice President Harris when she was in I the did. U.S. Senate. Yeah. I did. And his message is one of pride. Let's be proud. We are proud of being Jewish. We're not cowering in this moment, even amid the rise of hate. We are proud. Of this moment. So, yes, there has been a bit of a turning point in terms of how people identify, including with Israel. And, and there's polling to show it. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all in one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Let's bring your worlds together. Let's bring together your expertise, your faith, and American politics. So the trifecta. It's what here. I do each day. It's what you do every day. <laughs> so and I don't want to reduce what's going on in Israel to a polling stat, so please understand. But based on your research, how are American Jews seeing the president? How are they seeing the situation? Do you have broader information on how Americans are seeing the conflict? Yeah, this is something we're looking at very closely because we are both an advocacy and a political organization, right. and we support Democrats who share our values, including the president. One of those values is support of Israel. And after October 7th, there was a poll, of, a national poll of Jewish voters about four weeks later in November. And what it showed was that 74% of American Jews approve of the way he's handling this conflict. Those numbers even go beyond the partisan divide. So it's showing Republicans were quite happy. And we saw this as well. My counterpart, the head of the Republican Jewish Coalition, actually was quite pleased uh, with the way the president's handling the war. He's never said anything positive right. about a Democrat, I don't think. You know, it's something that went beyond the partisan divide, the denominational divide in our community. It's an important thing to acknowledge because among this subset of the electorate, 
the Jewish Americans were quite happy with the president. Now, when we compare that to other subsets of the electorate, let's look at like the Arab American, Muslim American voters, also very important communities, including in my home state of Michigan, you see the opposite. They're not happy with his handling of the war. That said, I find it so hard to believe that 11 months from now, that community would support someone who on day one of his last administration enacted the Muslim ban. And discusses mass deportation and denaturalization. Right. And on day one of you know, what he thinks would be a second term, says he wants to be a dictator. Because what communities will be impacted by his emboldening and full embrace of uh, right-wing extremism? Basically everybody who's not a white Christian male. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's actually what the Jewish voters and Arab American Muslim voters have in common. Because just as there's been a rise of anti-Semitism, there's also a rise of Islamophobia. Right. Which we've seen since 9-11. Absolutely. Right. I mean, so this is not a new phenomenon for us. Absolutely. And the president's been really clear in his condemnation of that, but not just words. He's actually taken actions. He has a a large-scale policy to combat anti-Semitism. Right. Among Democrats going beyond those two communities, you've actually seen an interesting shift because right After October 7th, about 50% of Democrats were happy with how Biden was handling the crisis. And then a few weeks later, more recently, early December, it was up by 10 points. Now, what happened in that period? Well, the president's ability to negotiate a humanitarian pause resulted in the release of 100 hostages. That was really important, a big win for the president. And Democrats were happy with that. So we'll see. That said, it's 11 months until the election. It's hard to say what will be the top issues that will impact how people vote. I don't know that this will be among them, even for Jewish voters. Israel's never been the number one issue. We vote on the future of our democracy. We vote on abortion rights, guns, climate change. Mostly domestic policy issues. But all those things go away with the second Trump term. Like, goodbye. Like, don't even think about it. Don't even, you know, let me say this. Don't even worry about it. All those things you care about, don't need to worry about them anymore if he wins again. Like, goodbye. So this is the next question I wanted to ask, which is, you've talked about there have been some Muslim Americans who've said, like, we're sitting this one out, you know, because we're so mad at him, which seems to be spiting your nose to hurt your face. It's a vote for Donald Trump. It's a vote for Donald Trump. But also talk about, What's going on on campus? We talked about the presidents, but let's talk about the kids, because now I remember me in college vaguely, and this is not somebody I want to revisit, um, is what you're seeing on campuses as widespread as it would appear to be on the news? And what is driving the anti-Semitism in some people being pro-Hamas? Is it, I'm going to use this word, I'm going to use it on purpose, Haley. Is it ignorance? Is it? deeply held belief like I just don't know now I didn't have many deeply held beliefs when I was 19 or 20 but I'm also a pretty shallow guy so like what is it I have to think there's ignorance that's driving this I actually agree with you because there's it's an oversimplification of an incredibly complex conflict you know and to blame American Jews for even if you disagree with it for the actions of the Israeli government to blame us and students 
is not just ridiculous and ignorant, but it's really dangerous and anti-Semitic to accuse American Jewish students of being responsible for genocide. By the way, a genocide that is not happening. There is no genocide. And then to have the presidents of these, let's call it like it is, these esteemed academic institutions in our country, three of the best, to have them refuse to just unequivocally say that's unacceptable was, it was quite horrifying. Well, and that's the thing that I don't understand. I assume that having those jobs is probably great on a resume, probably on a daily basis, not a great job, no matter what. Because I have to assume that if you're the president of Harvard, somebody's always upset about something. Like, you don't go to Harvard to not complain. You also don't see them have to testify often. So this this, this was a new level. But this is where, like, I mean, they're literal ivory towers, right? And so, like, what happens there, they don't think matters, and then they think they can do whatever they want. And, you know, this is what I would say, and I have seen, you know, God, we've all seen videos of young people tearing down the pictures of hostages, someone filming them, and then the person tearing down say, how dare you film me? And what I'm not quite sure I understand is, like, it's America. You're more than welcome to feel however you want to feel, talk however you want to talk within limits, not many, obviously, but also take no responsibility whatsoever when somebody says you shouldn't do that. And is someone who, you know, as a vestigial Republican still seems like you should be responsible for your own actions doesn't make any sense to me. So what you want to do is you want to display your hatred for this. But when you're caught on camera, you don't want anybody showing that it's you doing it right. Like step up. And I would say this, and I'm going to say this, I'm not, I am not ascribing this to Haley at all, but you saw within the United States State Department that there were people who were upset with the Israel policy. From my perspective, if that's how you really feel, resign. Like, I worked for a presidential administration, right? Like, when you sign on with a presidential administration, what you say is, I may keep my own beliefs, but when I go to work, this is the line. This is the line. And if I can't work for you any longer, that's fine. I should leave. And that's what I don't understand is like people want to have these strongly held beliefs. They want to say all this stuff. They want to do all this stuff. But at the end of the day, no one's willing to sacrifice for it. And I don't understand it. There have been letters, anonymous letters from within the administration. And again, Um, I'm saying that, not you. Well, I mean, I... I actually was a part of an effort with 137 former Obama alum to support. And we wrote a letter. We wrote our names on the letter supporting the president's position with regard to Israel. It's really this issue of a ceasefire that has been contentious. And this is also what you have, what you've had the calls for, whether they be anonymous or even on college campuses, you have people calling for a ceasefire. But as a- what's the difference? I'm sorry to interrupt. What's the difference between a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause? The key difference is that a ceasefire is supposed to hold. It's okay. the end. It should be the, the end, end of okay. the conflict. And again, there have been multiple conflicts between Israel and Hamas in the past 15 years. And each of them has ended in a ceasefire. It's a negotiated end. Hamas has violated each one. The pause was a negotiated period of time and negotiated terms. So the terms were that Hamas was supposed to release the women and children and elderly that it had in captivity. And 
Israel did exchange Palestinian prisoners. It was about a three to one ratio and also allowed humanitarian assistance to get in. But there was no agreed upon end to this conflict. And you still see the Israeli military operating within Gaza, attempting to destroy the infrastructure that Hamas has used to launch these attacks. So in your mind at this point, what are the Israeli authorities looking for that would lead to the possibility of a ceasefire? What in your mind, obviously? I don't think there can be an end or like a day after with Hamas still being able to perpetrate the kind of terror that we saw on October 7th, which means that Israel does have to destroy its infrastructure, which is vast. I mean, this is perhaps the most complex warfare right now that's happening right now in Gaza because Hamas has 500 kilometers of tunnels underground. Right. So it's about 300 miles. And do these run under the Israeli border? Is that the idea? Or is this just this well, <laughs> rabbit warren of stuff where they hide, they store stuff or a little bit of everything? It's like labyrinth and, and spider webs under Gaza. But they have tried, of course, to you know go under Israel. Israel's invested quite a bit in trying to stop that. But this is part of the infrastructure. And they're on the ground in Gaza trying to destroy this infrastructure, trying to ensure that Hamas can never do something again like they did on October 7th. Um, Israel hasn't clearly said how this ends, but it's clear that we, the United States, support Israel's efforts to defend itself, which means we are not, the president is not calling for a ceasefire at this right. time. But he, I, I did see that he asked Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, to maybe redouble efforts to ensure that they minimize, to the extent possible, in a war zone, yeah. civilian casualties. Absolutely. And Netanyahu didn't take kindly to this. There's nothing wrong with Biden emphasizing that the Israeli military right. must conduct its efforts consistent with international humanitarian law. It should. It should. And it does attempt to minimize civilian casualties. Again, any loss of life, innocent civilians, is, it's too much. It's too much. And as Jews, I mean, I, I mentioned, again, our, our belief in the value of each life. That's not just Jewish lives. Jews and Palestinians in this case, innocent Palestinians. Those who perpetrated this attack, though, this is a horror unlike that which I've certainly seen in my lifetime. Is there anyone in the Middle East, whether or not that's Saudi Arabia, Iran, the Russians, I know they're not in the Middle East, that could tell Hamas, stop, and they would be listened to? Well... I suppose the short answer is yes, it would be the Iranians, but there's no way <laughs> the, the Iranians who have armed, aided, bolstered Hamas for more than a decade, they absolutely would not. And they've Similarly, got Hezbollah up in Lebanon. Exactly. Another yeah. proxy, Hezbollah on Israel's northern border. And between the threat in the south and the threat that Israel faces in the north, Israelis also, about 200,000, have been displaced. I mean, these, those kibbutzim now are uninhabitable. And the threat in the northern border is very real as well. I mean, Hezbollah has even more sophisticated 
rockets, right. over 100,000 on the Lebanese border pointed at Israel, including some with precision-guided And munitions. do those come through Syria? Is that the idea, or do they come straight from Iran? Hezbollah has operated out of Lebanon. Um, right, but yes, they time. get there. They are a proxy of Iran. Iranian uh, munitions have gone through Syria. The Russians, I mean, they are also supporting right. the Iranians. Because and, for them, chaos is, they yes, need chaos. Yes, which is why it's so important, and this is a call to Congress, that they stop these delays and pass the essential assistance, not just for Israel, the $14.4 billion that needs to go to Israel, but right. also the $60 billion that needs to go to Ukraine. Every delay here is a win for Putin. Let me ask you this as, as a veteran of the Hill, a Democratic veteran of the Hill. The Ukraine holdup, and I know we're switching gears a little bit, the Ukraine holdup in the U.S. Senate doesn't make any sense to me because, I mean, yes, there are the J.D. Vances of the world who are the fifth columnists here don't like Ukraine. They're big Putin fans. They're big white nationalist fans. But like with McConnell, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense other than what it says to me is telegraphed is like whatever magic he had for all those years, he doesn't have anymore because it wouldn't be happening anymore. This wouldn't be happening. Israel and Ukraine, a muscular, moral American foreign policy, the last vestiges of Reaganism, such as it is in the Republican Party, like he was a standard bearer for it. Where the hell is he? You know, Johnson said he was all for Ukraine. He was all for Israel. I mean. Where is it now? Right. And so it surprises me, frankly, and confuses me. You know, the House, again, they're I mean, they're nuts across the board. But in the Senate, it doesn't make sense to me. I actually see them as very similar. And I think it makes sense in that it demonstrates that the Republicans are willing to jeopardize this essential security assistance to our allies, Israel and Ukraine, to play politics. In the House, this was actually, it was MAGA Mike's first act as speaker. He conditioned this aid on cuts to the IRS. I mean, it was a ridiculous gimmick that even the Congressional Budget Office that would increase the deficit, essentially, you know, enabling tax evasion. But to condition aid to Israel, I mean, that was unprecedented. And dead on arrival, of course, in the Senate. But he was willing to jeopardize it. He knew it was a game. He knew it wouldn't pass. And he, he, the president threatened to veto it. So he knew it was going nowhere. In the Senate, they know this is what we consider to be must-pass legislation. They know this is a priority and it has to get through. So McConnell and Republicans were willing to jeopardize that to add on difficult positions, priorities of theirs with regard to border security. The aid for border security, the assistance was in the package. Biden said it would be in there. Additional funding for border security was in there. But what they tried to add to the bill, which is why it failed last week, was provisions regarding how we police the border, ICE's role, detentions, asylums, difficult issues that we have debated, will continue to debate. But they piled on to what should have been a relatively easy must-pass bill with essential assistance to our allies, to Israel and Ukraine, they added this additional policy that they knew was a no-go for the right. president and Democrats. Yeah. And to me, that's the whole point. But it right? was political opportunism for but, them. They, but, they took the chance 
And in doing so, they're delaying life-saving assistance to, for Israel. So let me, let me be crassly political for a second. You mentioned your Republican counterpart, the <laughs> Republican Jewish coalition, very pro-Israel, very well-funded, a lot of wealthy Jewish Republican donors, including many who gave money to Donald Trump. Where are they in this? Because I hate to say that money is the mother's milk of politics. Where are they going? Hey, you guys, you better get your act together because you'd think that, OK, Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and later said he did it for the evangelicals <laughs> because they believe the end times are coming. We would have left a seat for Elijah, but we it's not <laughs> Passover yet. But so, like, where are they? I mean, and this is what I don't understand, Haley, is like, again, it either matters or it doesn't. And if you've said all this time, we're with Republicans, we're with Trump, we're with whatever, because they have stood by Israel. But now they're not because they can and they refuse. Same with Ukraine. They can and they refuse. Yeah. Where's the Republican Jewish coalition been for many years now as our values, our democracy, our community has been threatened by the person that they helped to elect, Donald Trump. He refused to condemn white supremacy on that debate stage in 2020. They you said remember, nothing. Remember at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, well, Jews will not replace us. And Very then, good people. And then he said good people on both sides. But importantly, at that on that debate stage in 2020, he refused to condemn white supremacy. He told an extremist group, the Proud Boys, to stand back and stand by. They heeded his call on yep. January 6th. And it was only then, January 7th, 60 plus days after the election, that the Republican Jewish Coalition was willing to recognize that Joe Biden won the election. Well, but on January 6th, remember, to me, the indelible image of that day, of many images that day, is the crazy looking guy in the parking lot on his cell phone wearing a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt. And this is what I say to my Republican friends that are still consider themselves Republicans, might consider themselves voting for Trump. I said, let me be clear with you. I am out of grace for all of this. If you stand with Donald Trump, you stand with that freaking guy. And you better be okay with that. And if you're okay with that, I don't know what to make of it. But this is a noxious, toxic group of people. It is a noxious, toxic, white Christian nationalist movement. And I really do believe somebody, uh, I'm going to steal this. Somebody said this to me, Haley. I don't remember who it is. And if you're out there, remind me that anti-Semitism is like the hard reset of racism. It's the control alt delete for racism. Anytime people can't figure anything out, they go back to the Jews. And it just is one of those things that it comes it's a wave. And sometimes the wave is rushing and sometimes the wave is ebbing, but the wave is never gone. Yeah. It's also a canary in the coal mine for the degradation of democracy as well. We've seen this over time. But the threats that we're talking about to our democracy, even to our community in the form of the rise of right-wing extremism, don't end just with Trump. I mean, Elise Stefanik was praised for her performance in that important college campus here. A Harvard graduate, by the way. Elise Stefanik is no ally of the Jewish community. Oh, she no. might have had a good performance, but 
she's a QAnon conspiracy theorist who has invoked anti-Semitic tropes, including the Great Replacement Theory. Speaking of Charlottesville, what were the Tiki Torch neo-Nazis chanting? Jews will not replace us. It is an anti-Semitic theory that has been used by dangerous extremists, including that the one who perpetrated over five years ago the deadliest attack, anti-Semitic attack in American history at the Tree Life Synagogue. In in Pittsburgh, yeah. That was in his manifesto. He wrote about the great replacement theory. And then we saw the shooter in Buffalo at the African-American grocery store. He invoked it as well. Tucker Carlson loves to talk about the great replacement theory. Incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Incredibly dangerous. And she, Elise Stefanik, to go back to her, has repeated these accusations. And here's the thing. She worked for George W. Bush. She was a senior policy person on the Mitt Romney campaign. And this is what makes it that much worse is she knows better. And she does it anyway because she's that cynical. She's that cynical. She's not a true believer in anything but herself. All she cares about is how she can rise through the ranks of, you know, and we've seen this throughout history, authoritarian movements and authoritarian regimes who rises to the top the people who will do anything, and the mediocre, right? Because no one else will do those things. Only the craziest and the most mediocre rise through the ranks because no one else would do the jobs they're being asked to do. Nobody would carry out the things they're asked to carry out. And Stefanik is a perfect example of that. So I think that this, that hearing, her role, the aid, there's a common thread here. And that is Republicans will seize moments of political opportunism to look like allies of the Jewish community or even of Israel. But in the most important moments, and make no mistake, that $14.4 billion that Joe Biden pledged on October 20th to Israel, here we are almost two months later, that is essential that Israel gets that money. I mean, they are depleting those interceptors in the Iron Dome. They're depleting their stockpile. They're shooting them off. I mean, this is a war, and it's now one of the longest wars we've seen since the Lebanon War that Israel fought in the 80s. These conflicts I've mentioned in the past with Hamas have been days, not even really weeks. Now we're going on two months, and that assistance is needed. Democrats are ready to pass it, and it's been the Republicans that have held it up. Last question, more broadly. Many Americans, I don't want to say most Americans, but if you took a poll on who was the party of national security, I think a majority of Americans would probably still say are the Republicans. I don't believe that anymore. They're isolationists. They're authoritarian curious, if not authoritarian loving. What do Democrats have to do to demonstrate their strength and commitment to American national security? I think they have demonstrated it. I think Biden has demonstrated it. I think just this week with Zelensky, here you have an adversary of the US, Russia, that has not just directly attacked our democracy, but attacked its neighbor going on two years now. And we have to stand with Ukraine. This is not just about that region. It's not just about Ukraine. This is also about our national security. He's been very strong and unequivocal in standing with the Ukrainians. We need to get this assistance through. But that is a key aspect of our national security. It's also important 
that we have allies. You know, Donald Trump is talking yet again. Not only does he want to be a dictator on day one, he wants to pull us out in NATO. Again, we have to hear. Can you imagine if we were not in NATO? That is essential. Yes, for I our, can. Right. Well, yes, there's T-72s on the Champs-Élysées. That is also essential for our national security, to have allies. And those are the partnerships and the essential alliances that Biden rebuilt in the aftermath of the four Trump years that were quite detrimental. And you will not convince me otherwise. I believe that Joe Biden single-handedly has kept, not only rebuilt, but kept the Western alliance together by himself. I mean, obviously he's got aides and everything else. And the vice president. And the vice president. But for the White House, the world is a vastly different place in a much less safe place. And I think that's, you know, I was interviewing uh, Heather Cox Richardson last week, and she talked about the global rules-based order that, for all of its faults, largely keeps the peace. That stuff starts to go out the window with like a Donald Trump. As I like to say, you may ignore politics. Politics does not ignore you. You may want the world to go by. The world does not leave you alone. And I think I'm usually at a loss as to how to express that to individual voters who have to make a choice 11 months, 10 months from now, but don't understand what they're giving up when they say, I'm willing to hand the keys back to this guy. Because it's not just throwing Joe Biden out of office, right? It's the whole ballgame. It is. People need to understand the stakes. And also, it shouldn't be based on personalities or individuals. You know, there's a lot, a lot is, uh, especially among younger voters, I would say right now, perhaps there's a lack of enthusiasm. They need to understand the issues that are really on the ballot, whether it's the future of our democracy or the future of their freedoms and rights, including their bodily autonomy, their future in terms of their ability to live without gun violence. I mean, that has plagued our communities. The difference between, at this point, the two parties, but also the two men that appear to be the candidates who will be at the top of the ballot, could not be more stark in terms of what they represent for our country's future. And I do hope that those who are either undecided or feeling apathetic about this upcoming election will think about the election in those terms. There is so much at stake. Right. No and time a for non, No. And a non-vote is a vote for Trump. It's right. a vote for, you know, he's dictator on day one. It's a vote for, you know, he wants to be Viktor Orban. That's who He's they obsessed think, who with that, Viktor Orban. That's who they think is a good guy. An anti-Semite dictator in Hungary. I know. Unbelievable. Well, it's not actually anymore. All right. Before we let you go, where can we find, if you dare to go on social media, where can we find you and where can we find JDCA? Yes, we are at jewishdems.org. Okay. I should say also, we are the political home and voice of Jewish voters in support of Democrats who share our values. It's not just Democrats. We know that there are a lot of either undecided or independent Jewish voters. We want to be that political home, but in support of Democrats who share our values. I am reluctantly still on the platform formerly known as Twitter, right. <laughs> at Haley Soifer. And yeah, that's where you can find me. But Jewish Dems, we're there. All right. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, 
on threads and Instagram at read underscore Galen underscore LP and at the Substack, the home front. Check it out, gang. Haley Soifer, thanks for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.